0: Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus, given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. How are you? Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here. And I know some of you are probably really excited about starting our study in the book of Genesis. Who was here last week and heard me say we're going to start a new book, um, a study in the Bible, we're going to study Genesis? Anybody here want to admit openly that they actually read ahead? and Right? So nerds in the room? Anyone? Okay. Yes. Overachievers in the room? Yes. Yes. Well, uh, I I, I suckered you all, I guess. We're not starting Genesis today. We're starting it next week. So I have something special that I want to share today. And I say special, and I mean this seriously. I would love to stand in a place of all honesty and tell you this, that most weeks, or every week rather, that what I share to you is actually something that God has placed deep inside my heart that I feel that God really wants us to understand. I'd love to say that I feel that every week, but that would be a lie to you. And as a pastor in a church, I don't think I should lie to you, right? You don't want to lie to me, right? Right? (laughs) Just check. I don't know. I don't know what kind of people we have in a room right now. I'm not (laughs) real sure. But I don't, I don't want to be dishonest to you. I want to be honest with you. So, so, but this week specifically, I, I really feel like what God um, wants to share to us uh, is what I have for you. And, and I don't say that with any form of hyperbole or any sort of setup like, oh, no, now we must listen to the guy in skinny jeans with a white beard. I don't, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I had to labor through some stuff this week, and it was very, very beneficial to me. And I think it would be very beneficial if everyone understood some of the stuff that I understand now. So anyways, that being said, um, typically the first week of a new year, I like to do a series or a, a, a sermon on pillars in the church, like some grounding things, like this is our core values. This is where we're going as a church for 2018. Most people kind of want to launch out, sort of be pushed out into the ocean of the new year, going in the right direction. And so a core value series or something like that would be very, very good for us to sort of set the, the the, the, tie the rope to a stake in the yard. So when 2018 comes and we're running around crazy, we at least have some semblance of a, of a tie down to what we want to do as a church, right? So that's all I'm trying to say. So I want to do that, but I'm not going to do a series of messages i have one message i have one thing that i i think god wants us to do this year and i mean this and i I need you to hear this i I mean it individually and i mean it corporately for us as a church i think god would want some things of us and i think what god is leading us to uh, is this is to look more like jesus Simply put, I I don't have any other great way to say it. I I want myself and I want this church for 2018 to look more like Jesus. And this sounds so much easier than it is. Because when you read scriptures and you look at what Jesus' life looked like and you see how he interacted with others um, and you say to yourself, I want to be more like him, it will cause you to act with a level of compassion And mercy and grace for others that you you honestly do not have for them. Let me give you some examples. The Bible is replete with stories of God's people taking care of the sojourner. The sojourner simply means the immigrant, the foreigner, the one who's traveling through their nation into your nation. I'm not making a political statement right now, but I can tell you right now, some of you are being buffed, buffeted right now just by that idea that I have to show compassion and be caring and show mercy to those immigrants who come into this country. A right? Second thing that we could understand is this. Um, I'll be very honest with you. Those people who stand on the corners holding up those signs, I do not believe them. I don't believe them. I think they make more money than some of the people that work at McDonald's, right? Or some of the other jobs. I'm serious. And so when they say they're homeless or they need help, I don't believe them. And yet, if I'm going to be more like Jesus in this year, then I've got to learn to to operate and move in compassion. Now, what does that mean? Give them money? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I want to lean into that for this year. The, the Bible, and particularly the, the, the Gospels, the, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us the stories of Jesus' life. There are so many things that Jesus has done. He's given us an example on how we should live in this world. I think it's John's Gospel who tells us that all of the things that Jesus has done could never be written and contained in one book anyways. He's just that great of a person. But there's a couple things that I know we can lean into um, modeling our lives individually and corporately to look more like Jesus. And I'll just give you a couple of these right now. The first is this, is when we read the gospels, we see that Jesus oftentimes would teach the masses. The Bible calls it the multitudes. There'd be large groups of people that would come to hear the message of salvation in the kingdom of heaven through Jesus in large groups of people. So as a church, we feel called to do that. We believe, right, the church is going to continue to grow. If you're visiting the Renaissance, thank you for coming. But just know this, we are now entering into our seventh year as a church, and we have seen steady growth every year in the church until last year we plateaued. And the reason we plateaued is we outgrew our space. And so we did something we'd never done before. We launched a capital campaign, a first ever for Renaissance. We asked people to pledge money over the next two years to help us renovate another three or 30,000 square feet so that we can make more room for more people. We believe in teaching the message of Jesus to the masses. You want to know what I believe in my heart of hearts? We'll get that room finished on the third floor this year? Maybe. All right. All right. All right. I hope, I hope, I don't know, man. That's what I'm saying. But the architects are telling us that if we follow the plan that they've laid out for us, that we could very well be in our new worship space with about 500 seats, say hello to your neighbors, have 500 seats, right? And we could be doing that by October or November of this year. So I believe that it happened. Then I also believe that God will continue to send more people to hear the good news of Jesus. And the church that is 600 now in Renaissance every weekend will probably grow to 1,200. Yeah, I said it. I'm cocky. I'm bold. I just believe that's what God is doing. And it has nothing to do with us. And, and we, we do that. I want you also to know this. Even though this is our first ever capital campaign and pledge campaign, we have been building and renovating for seven years. It's what we do Oh my goodness! If any of you were here the first year or so, we had forty fools that would come every Sunday night, and you know we'd sit at high tables in the back. We'd take communion out of shot glasses. That was awesome. (laughs) You're welcome. But we outgrew this space, and so we added overflow rooms. We added more office space. We have kid space. We have 10,000 square feet next door to the house, our offices, and our kid space. We're continuing to grow. So, growing is nothing new. Remodeling is nothing new. Bringing in more money so that we can do it faster is something new for us. But everyone has said yes, and we're moving forward. We bought these two buildings. By this time next year, we'll for sure be in the upper floor in a bigger sanctuary space. So, preaching to the masses yes, we want to do that. Secondly, um, but we oftentimes see Jesus speaking to smaller groups of people. Jesus would pull the twelve, right? Twelve disciples that he, hear me, that he hand picked. Have you ever had someone come to you and say, "Hey, Jeff, I really want you to disciple me"? I just quickly remind them, "Hey, bro, Jesus got to pick his twelve, and I don't pick you. I'm just saying." It's not true. Of course, we disciple everyone, but we try to make space for smaller groups of people. Now, at Renaissance, we call these Ren Groups. It's just our fancy way of saying small groups. And this spring, we're going to launch a whole series of new Ren Groups. And they meet in homes throughout the city on multiple days of the week. And there's 10 to 12 people that come together under a common theme or a common idea. And that's our desires that people will then learn from others in a more intimate setting. Can I be very honest with you? If, you're on, if the only time you're opening Scripture, the only time you're thinking about Jesus and worshiping God, etc., is when you come here on Sundays, and I'm the only guy who reads the passage for you and tells you what it means, I, I promise you, you will be a very weak and anemic Christian. You, you need to wrestle with the Scriptures on a more regular basis than Sundays will allow. Small groups make place for that. Small groups also make place for this opportunity to argue, I say that lovingly, with one another on what it means. That's awesome. When you can sit down and say, I think this is what the Lord is saying here. I think this is what's going on. You're wrong. Or no, you're wrong. That's the funnest part of it. You get to come together and wrestle through those things. And then Jesus would also do this really fun thing. He would pull um, out of the 12, Peter, James, and John, just three people. Sometimes just Peter himself aside and speak intimately to him. And my desire is out of of these small groups of 10 or 15 people that relationships would form and that you start meeting with friends over coffee and, yes, tacos. That's the win. Jesus is glorified over tacos. Yes. But if you read the Gospels, there's so many other things that Jesus has done. I already mentioned that. So what other things are we going to do as a church both individually and corporately for 2018. Are you sitting down? Are you waiting for it? Here it, is. Here it comes. I have no idea. <laughs> and I mean that. I have no idea what's coming next. And some of you are freaking out. Wait, aren't you the senior pastor? Shouldn't If there's anyone in the room who should know what the church is going to look like next year, shouldn't it be that guy? I'd agree with you, honestly. Except there's just this unsettledness within me. I, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I know this, that when I find myself in that place, I can sometimes find some semblance of a direction in my life if I begin to look backwards. So if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you'll begin to look back in your life and you begin to see stones or a pathway that God has sort of laid out. And if you can sort of line all those stones up, you can see maybe an idea of where God wants to take you. And so for the last week and a half or so, I've been looking over the last seven years of Renaissance's history. I've been reading some of my old sermons. I found the first sermon I ever preached, it's ridiculously bad, horribly bad. (laughs) I think I lied in it. Honestly, I I don't think I told the truth about Jesus or anything. It was ridiculous. But I was rereading those stories, and I was reminded that when we first started, there was tremendous, and I don't say this with hyperbole. But I think there were miracles taking place. The hand of God was leaving heaven, coming to earth, and touching this church in such a way that we were able to grow, that we never could have grown without it. We never could have succeeded without the hand of God. Miracles were taking place. And I could go on and on with those stories, but I want to bore you with that because I want to focus on where we're headed. And so when I look back and see all the wonderful things that God has done, I'm wondering, where is he taking us next year? And I just settled in this place of giving up to understand it. And in this moment, I had a conundrum of sorts. I began to wonder, am I, am I losing my spiritual hearing? Has the Holy Spirit left me? Do I, do I, have I missed it? Am I, am I, is, there, is there unconfessed sin in my life? And over and over and over, I begin to play things out. Why am I not hearing what God wants for us? Why am I not hearing the next step for us? And I'm I'm looking into this, and I began to wonder um, if maybe this wasn't a God-ordained moment for us. The Bible is filled with stories of men and women, followers of Jesus, Christians, believers in God, who had seasons in their life where they were wandering in the desert. They would find themselves left to their own devices. Uh, the Bible calls this in exile. They've been pulled into captivity and some other things. And they're wondering where God is and what's next for them. But I, I've learned that these things are oftentimes not just um, dark periods in their history. I also believe them to be the, the biggest transformative period in their history. See, here's what I believe. God transforms people in the desert, in the wilderness, in the wanderings. So I'm, I'm reading a book. Um, by a pastor out in the West Coast, it's called The Dusty Ones. And he talks about the, the people of God should have dust on their feet as they follow God wherever he takes them. And yes, sometimes he has them wander through dusty desert places. And he thinks that it's not only good for us, but he believes it to be a holy discipline that we sometimes avoid because we think we're missing it. That if God has us wandering, then we must be doing something wrong. And hear, hear me, if you hear anything today, that's not true. It's not true. God leads people to wander sometimes. And I think we as a church, both individually and corporately, are having some of those moments. So I'm going to read um, two verses today. It's in Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to read verses 18 and 19. That little bumper video right here, right now, that's from Isaiah 43:19. That's the work I want to do. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 43, 18, and 19. We'll put the words on the screen. You can follow along there. But before we go there, I want to give you just a little bit of a back story on what's happening. Is anybody else seeing the haze in the room? I I wonder if the haze are still left on, if we can check that. Just so you know, it is water vapor. I know it makes you want to cough but it is just glycol and water vapor. Nothing's on fire, I hope. (laughs) Um, I'll go one farther. I'll turn the fan on for you. Check this out. Jesus. (laughs) Wait for it. (laughs) So we'll pull that out. Anyways, so before we get to Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, I want to just share the backstory of what's happening. Um, God's people, as they were called by him, lived in 12 different tribes, 12 different family groups. And it's been that way for a very, there it is for a very long time. You're welcome. So anyways, um, and then, then King David comes along. This is way back in the history books. King David comes along, and he's a, 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 a king of war. And he, he battles against the nations that are close to them. And he unites the kingdom of Israel together for the first time in its history. All 12 tribes living in the promised land exactly as God intended and then David goes the way of all men he dies his son takes over Solomon and Solomon as he's reigning has the as a period of peace and prosperity that Israel has never seen before. And Solomon is known in antiquities as one of having some of the greatest wealth the world has ever ever seen. But then when Solomon dies his two sons begin to battle for control of the kingdom. These two sons fight each other, and eventually Israel is split in half. There's a northern kingdom with ten tribes up here. The capital city is a place called Samaria, and then there's a southern kingdom with a capital in Jerusalem. And for hundreds of years, they live like this. They oftentimes would war against the neighboring nations, then they oftentimes would war against each other. Isn't that awesome? Think of this, the people of God fighting each other. Sounds like the American church. You're welcome. And so, before long, because of sin, disobedience, and rebellion, God allows, sovereignly allows, a neighboring nation called Assyria to wage war against the northern kingdom. This northern kingdom eventually succumbs to Assyria in 722 BC. They tried to take on the southern kingdom, but God's hand helps them, and they live separated and isolated for another 140 years. But eventually the Babylonians come in, they beat Assyria and the Babylonians come rushing in. And in 586 BC, they siege Jerusalem and defeat the Southern kingdom. And then they do something that is so profound. They begin to take all of the wealthy All of the smart people, all of the elite, and they drag them out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, out of the promised land, and drag them into a place called Babylon, where they lived for 70 years in exile. Lonely, wandering, wondering what on earth is God doing in our lives? Why are we way out here? Do you see the similarities? And it's in this that God begins to speak to them through a man named Isaiah. There it is, Isaiah chapter 43. And he begins to speak promises of God. He begins to speak about how strong God is as a creator, that God created. Here's Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's by his might and by his power alone does everything exist. And Isaiah begins to remind God's people about this. begins to breed hope back into their life again. There's a future back in your life again. You're wandering now. You're in a desert place now. But I promise you, God has a purpose, has a plan. And yes, by his strength, you will enter into it. Can you see how this would be beneficial to them? And the words that Isaiah says to them, I think would be beneficial to us. So I want to read a couple verses. But before I do, would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for our time together we thank you that you have brought us together in this new year. And yes, there are many of us who would probably admit that we have a sensing of wandering. There's like a siren's call to the unknown. It's mysterious and elusive. We don't know what it is, but God, we want to know what it is. God, we ask that you help us individually and corporately, that your spirit would come alive inside of us and lead us. We thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you for what you've made available to us through him. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can um, exalt your name and sing of your glories and your wonders in this place. And we, we rejoice in that. God, I pray that you awaken us from the, uh, the hamster wheel that is our life and, and, and move us into something far better. Something far greater, something so much newer and more wonderful for us. And we pray these things, not in our own name, but in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19. He says this. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. For behold, I am doing a new thing. And now it springs forth. Do you not see it? Do you not perceive it? Is what he says. I, God, will make a way in the wilderness, and I will put rivers into the desert. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot, but there's so much in there. Um, but I want to work our way through those two verses backwards. I want to start with this idea of wilderness or desert. We oftentimes picture these places as a wasteland. In fact, the translation we use for that video, he says, I will put a pathway through the wasteland. We think it's devoid of life, it's empty. But let us not forget, again, that some of the greatest transformations in people's lives took place in the desert, took place in these these, um, dusty places that we call the wilderness. Uh, Moses, if you know the story of Moses, when God spoke to him, I need you to hear this, he did not speak to him in Pharaoh's palace, But he spoke to Moses after Moses had killed an Egyptian, was running for his freaking life, hiding out in his his father-in-law's land, the land of Midian, tending his sheep when God begins to speak to him through a bush that's burning yet not being consumed. In the wilderness, Moses had this transformative time in his life and his life was never the same for it. Jeremiah speaks to the wicked king Ahab, declares God's providence over their own lives and then runs himself into the wilderness to find from God, oh no, now what do we do? Ezekiel, wondering what God has in plan for God's people, God leads Ezekiel into the desert, into a valley of dry bones and shows him this pile of dead things that God then says, now watch what I do with them as he knits them back together with sinew and muscle and creates an army of God from bones in the desert. Jesus, after he's baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he does battle against Satan himself as Satan tempts him and God comes out victorious in Jesus and Jesus then and only then does he begin his earthly ministry in the world. John the baptizer, standing in the the wilderness, we learn, right? Baptizing people in the Jordan River is crying out to them, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. The wilderness is the place where the transformation takes place in our lives. So I just need you to know this. So even though I've been sort of frustrated, been wondering, am I losing it? Has the Holy Spirit left me? Am I clouded my, have I clouded my eyes or deafened my ears because of unconfessed sin? All these things. I'm wondering. I'm learning now that this is the place that God wants me to be, and I wonder if it's not also the place that God wants us to be. But there's something significant that has to change. We have to see it a little differently. This wilderness place, hear me, is not a punishment. This wilderness place, this wandering time is not a punishment for us. Now, in Israel's life, it was disobedience that led to that, but I need you to hear this. God was speaking the promise of returning them to Jerusalem, which they would do. Ezra and Nehemiah tells that story. They eventually come back to Jerusalem, but this wandering period is fraught with frustration and stress. And so he continues back up in verse 19, the first part of 19. He says, do you not perceive it? Do you not see it? Look upon it. Pay attention to it. Do not miss this thing that God is doing. It's so easy for us to get lost in what God is going to do that we, that we miss the fact that he has started to do something. He says, this new thing that I'm doing is going to spring forth. Ah. Uh. Who admits winter is horrible and is of the devil in Jesus' name? Someone say yes. <laughs> yes. Except for this one thing. is after every cold winter, a warm day will thaw all that frosted ground and a, a new spring leaf just pops through. And it's in that moment that we go insane. Spring has sprung, we say. People who ride motorcycles, even though it's only 36 degrees, they get them out of the garage. Spring is here. Let's go. We open the windows. We start spring cleaning. And just the smallest new life has come through from the frozen ground. This is what God is doing. This is the picture of what Isaiah is promising to God's people in captivity, in exile. There's something new that's taking place. Can you see it? It'll spring forth from the ground. Jesus says a parable uh, in the New Testament. I don't remember where. Don't hold that against me. But he says, there's a a seed that must die before it can bring forth fruit. The, The husk of a seed, the husk of our lives oftentimes needs to be broken open so that newness of life can come. It must be buried into the ground and buried like it's dead before new things can come. Now, just real quick barometer check. Are we feeling any hope yet? Any? I only have a few more minutes. I, just, I, I, I don't know how much hope I have left to give you. God's doing something. He says, do you not see it? It's springing forth. And he says, I am doing it. Be mindful of this. It is not you. It is him who's doing it. He's seeing something that we can't see. He's able to do something that we cannot do. God's unlimited ability to transform us is so much greater than our ability to see the things that he's doing. We need to change our perception on things. We need to see this desert place, this wandering place, like kids see a snow day. I'll give you an example. Four to six inches of snowdrops. All the adults in the room go, ugh right, and you're defrosting windows, you're shoveling out driveways, you're frustrated traffic, people don't know how to drive in snow, right, all them morons on the road, yes, I agree, (laughs) right, we're so frustrated, and yet, if you're eight years old, and you see four to six inches underground, what do you do? You run outside in your pajamas, it's awesome, (laughs) like you're eating pancakes at noon, because there's no school today, (laughs) that's what this looks like when God is doing something brand new. That's what this looks like when God begins to move in that wandering, that wilderness, that exile period. It is something so exciting for us. We need to see it for what it is. God sees that this wilderness place for you is, yes, stressful, is, yes, bringing turmoil into your life, is, yes, causing you all kinds of anxiety and frustration, and yet he sees that it's only in this place will you change and grow and understand who he is. So what kind of people are we going to be? The murmurers as we scrape frost off of our window, going, they're spoken tongues. That felt kind of good. But but that, that happens, and then God is saying, dude, you have no idea what's happening right now. You have no idea what's happening right now. I'm doing something. Don't you see it? There's a surrender that took place in Israel's history. Jeremiah the prophet said that they would be in exile for 70 years, and they held on to this promise. And I'm telling you, God in his sovereign ways orchestrated the exact event. Seventy years later, they began to march back to Jerusalem. God is doing it. Do you not see it, he says. Go back up to verse 18, and he says, Remember not... Right? Nor consider, he says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. I confessed earlier that I started to look back over the last seven years of what we had done in the church, trying to find some future for us, and and it wasn't working. And so when I read this in Isaiah, I began to realize Jeff, you're doing it all wrong, anyways. (laughs) Here's what I knew about the first seven years of this church. With those miracles that took place, again, I won't bore you with the details, it was wonderful. And yet the Lord stands before us and says, let's remember not the things of old. Israel had the greatest backstory of any nation on the earth. They were held in bondage, in slavery, in a country called Egypt. A wicked king Pharaoh was ruling over them harshly. God rescued them. Ten miraculous plagues, a parting of the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground. There's a miracle beyond miracle backstory. And God says, let's not pay too much attention to what happened last week. Because what I'm doing now... Will cause that to pale in comparison. Oh, oh, have we got your attention now? Where's the hope now? Where are we at? Just give me, I got five more minutes. See, last, the last awesome thing God did in your life was awesome. That's why we call it that. But the new awesome thing is so much greater. So much greater. He says, let's not focus too much on the things of the past, And this will go even one step further for those of us who have a past that is, um, well, shall we say, (laughs) one that we wish we didn't remember. Isaiah, he uses this word, remember not the things of this past. Don't dwell on the things of the past. If you were to continue to read Isaiah, you get to chapter 25, and Isaiah uses the exact same verb again. Let me read it for you. I don't have it on the screens here, but let me read this. God speaking again. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not, he says, remember your sins anymore. I'm driving to church this morning. And, um. I'm thinking about how powerful and how great and awesome God is. And it, it hits me. I think the greatest power that God has ever showed in this universe is the power to forget our sins. You don't, you don't agree with me? Because you can't do it. You, you've tried it. You, you've tried to forget your sins. You've tried to forget all of that stuff, and it still comes back and haunts you. And the, the mighty God, Jehovah, forgets everything. You tell me he's not powerful. He blots out our sins. He forgets them. And then he's using that same word to describe the wonderful things that he's done in our past. Let's not focus on that stuff because what's ahead of us is even so much greater, would you agree? Yes. Yes. Remember not those things. Don't dwell on those things in the past. As far as the east is from the west, he says. So far have I removed the transgressions from us. I want to close with these last three observations, and then we're going to take communion today, which I think is a wonderful thing to do on the first Sunday of the new year to take communion together. Three... Um, quick observations. If we're ever to be good Bible students, studiers of the Bible, good Christians or whatever, and we use the Bible as our frame of reference, um, as God's word in our life, we have to do it justice. And we have to read it in a certain way that's correct. Um, I know people oftentimes think that the Bible was, is about you. Can I be very frank? It's not about you. You won't find your name in it at all. I <laughs> I promise unless your name is Jesus. And if it is, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. Um, But it's not, it's not, it's about, it's about God's people, particularly the nation of Israel. So I want you to hear this first and foremost, when we're reading Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19 and 18, it's God speaking to his people, Israel. This message was first and foremost to them. So historically, we understand that. And then, and then we begin to understand what he promised Israel took place. And now this is the second observation that we lay into our lives. This is when it begins to make sense to us because we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is, in fact, immutable. He does not change. And if we see him respond to Israel, God's people, that way, then can we not expect him to operate that way in our lives? Yes, now the application begins to lay into our lives. So this is where the hope comes from. What he's done for Israel by bringing forth a pathway in the wilderness, bringing a river into the desert. This is the work that God is doing, not just for them, but for us. And then the last thing that I want to say as I finish um, is that all of this ultimately points to the one new thing that God would do. All of this ultimately points to his son Jesus coming to earth. This new thing that he was going to do is, is so much greater than just taking Israel and placing her back into Jerusalem. This is so much greater than that. God's own son Jesus came to earth. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He, uh, he absorbed the punishment of sin on a Roman cross and died The perfect one, the sinless one, died because sin had been placed upon him. Your sin and my sin. They place him in a grave. God raises him from the dead on the third day, and he has been resurrected. And now by faith in him, we now have hope in eternal life. We now have hope to overcome sin. And now through Jesus, we have the hope of the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to lead us and empower us and to guide us. This new thing that God was going to do that Isaiah speaks of is Jesus, I will make a path in the wilderness, he said. This desert place, this this land of sin and debauchery and brokenness and hurting and wounded people. He says, I will put a path in there. In John chapter 10, Jesus, in one of his great I am statements, says, I am the gate. Nobody, he says, comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. I want you to hear this. That outside is where everything else is. And if you want to get to the place where God is, there's a a fence that cannot be crossed and there is a gate in that fence. And I want you to hear this. Jesus is not the gatekeeper. He's not opened it for you. He is the gate. You come to the Father. You come into the kingdom of God through Jesus alone. His works, His salvation, His death, His resurrection brings you into the kingdom of God. Only Him. John chapter 7. Jesus, on the last day of one of the uh, Jewish feasts, I don't remember which one, forgive me. Priest walks in and begins to uh, drain a basin of water. At the end of this feast, in this exact moment, Jesus begins to cry for anyone who could hear. Within earshot, he he cries these words, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Drink of the water that I give, and you will thirst no no more. And out of you will flow rivers of living water. This moment in Isaiah, speaking into Israel's history, he's declaring the goodness that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, hear me, is the river He's the river that brings life. This is the most important thing for us to understand. Our very existence exists. Thank you. For him and from him. I don't know what 2018 looks like. Look like Jesus. Show compassion and mercy. Husbands, love your wife like Christ did and, and, die, and gave himself up for her. L- look like Jesus. Here's a very real thing. I, I struggle with compassion. It's a weird thing to be a pastor of a church and not like people. It's strange, I promise you. <laughs> there are entire stores in the city that I refuse to go into. Walmart, anyone. I promise this is God's honest truth. I, I only drive through the parking lot at Walmart to get to the taco place. What does 2018 look like? I could throw programs and plans and all kinds of stuff, but I promise you it, will, it won't amount to anything unless this church looks like Jesus. Oh. You could be the most productive guy on your sales team at your job. You could, you know, God could do the greatest thing in your life. I promise you, if you and I do not look like Jesus, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I want to pray for us. The communion team is going to come forward. We'll take communion together. My friend Curtis is going to come up and share with us um, a really compelling story about communion. I want to leave time for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that even though we might feel like we're wandering in life, um, you're sovereign, you're in control, (laughs) you're stronger than we are. You can do things that we cannot do. You can see things that we cannot see. And so we just submit, we yield, we give over our plans, we give over our ideas, and we just want to follow you. We just want to look like you, Lord. Man, how much greater would the world be if there was a whole lot more of Jesus around? God, we thank you for our time together. Would you bless our day today, and would you bless this year as we shove off into a brand new year? Pregnant with promise and hope, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendecatur.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.